Thank you, church. I uh, hope you don't get tired of hearing us say this, but we really mean it. Thank you for allowing that to happen, for letting us take all of our study weeks together and deepen our sense of team and our sense of connection with the Scripture, which is sometimes perplexing, the Scriptures. Have you found that to be true if you're really honest about it? It's perplexing. Sometimes the Scriptures, they're a beautiful thing, and other times they make you scratch your head. I've entitled this message, which is really a a little bit of a meandering through uh, a text, which is for us today, Psalm 121. It was one of the it was one of the pieces of reading for our, uh, our schedule this week. The lies God tells us. Because the fact is, sometimes it looks as though the things we read in Scripture simply do not measure up to reality. Now, we're used to hearing lies. We hear them all the time. We, they're common to us. In fact, they're so common, there are certain lies that we understand we almost don't count them as lies because people don't mean them as lies, but they're things we're just used to hearing, and here are some of them. Common lies we hear or tell far too often. Here here are a few of them. We're sorry for your inconvenience. Have you heard that one and wondered whether they really were sorry for the inconvenience? Here's one. Now the pastor will say a few words. That's never true. You know, that's never true. Uh, Windows is checking for a a solution to your problem. (laughs) Windows has been checking forever and found no solutions to my problem. The phrase, estimated download time. That's just not true. Not estimating my down. How about this one? Uh, When we check the little box next to where it says, I have read all the terms and conditions. (laughs) No, we haven't read all. Has anybody read all the terms and conditions? You'd still be reading the terms and conditions. Heard this one? We'll keep your resume and get in touch with you. I'm not sure either of those is ever true, that you keep it or get in touch. Just one more little bite, honey, and then I'm done. Here's a phrase that's a complete lie. Think about this one. Free health care. That just doesn't happen. There's no such thing anywhere. And then my favorite, even though it doesn't apply to me, doesn't stir me, but I think it's cute. There are sexy singles in your area that want to meet you. No, that's just not ever, <laughs> ever, ever true at any level. And these, we're just used to this stuff, right? We're so used to it that it doesn't really even shock us, especially phrases like that. Because we all understand that people sometimes say things that they mean to use to function in ways other than to present precise, specific, detailed truth. Like, we'll get back to you. We all understand. You're not really obligated to get back to me. We almost don't even count that as a lie. What that is is a polite, nice way, safe way, non-traumatic way to end an interview. We know they don't really mean that. So it's not a shock to us. There's something that's going on sometimes as we spend the summer in the Scriptures and we search for Scriptures, texts that could really perhaps change our lives and memorize some of these texts. There's one thing I hope we'll never get used to. And that's the fact that at least at first reading, sometimes the Bible seems to say things that don't seem to be true. At least at first reading, at least 
at initial glance. I hope we never get used to that. For instance, look at some of these. Let me read some of these. I want to ask you to turn there with me because I want to uh, move fairly quickly. But listen to this. Let me give you some examples. Psalm 41. Listen to Psalm 41, 1 through 3. Blessed are those who have regard for the weak. That's good. The Lord delivers them in times of trouble. The Lord protects and preserves them. They are counted among the blessed in the land. He does not give them over to the desires of their foes. We read that, except we know that there are people who care about the weak who still experience sickness and trouble. So what's going on with that text, with that promise? Sometimes it seems, at least at first reading, that the Bible is pretty uh, lazy about its promises and presents things that aren't, aren't actually true. In the Gospel of John, John chapter 17, listen to this. Jesus is praying and he says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world praying for his disciples. And I'm coming to you, Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and I kept them safe by that name you gave me. Now none has lost, and I've lost none of them except uh, the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. And he says to the father, protect them the way I protected them, except we know that every one of those disciples, except for possibly one, died a martyr's death, and none of them were particularly present. So this is a protection I don't feel I really need, if that's how you define protection. What's going on in the text here? And one of those experiences where it seems the Bible is promising something that it doesn't deliver, it seems that we're being lied to, if we take it as a promise, is this text we read in Psalm 121. It's almost as though instead of summer in the scriptures, we should call this series Summer in the Sham. Because Psalm 121, huh. Yet I'm convinced that this is a verse rightly read, rightly understood, honestly and fairly approached. This is a text. Man, if you read it, it will inform your life. If you apply it, it could possibly change your life. Open your Bibles. Will you have one in the back of the seat in front of you if you're sitting and not sitting in the front row? Otherwise, a Bible you brought, maybe electronically. Uh, I'm purposely asked them not to put this up on the screen so we could actually touch a book and uh, read this together. But I want you to turn, if you're in the Pew Bibles, it's page uh, 571, where Psalm 121 is. So open up the Psalm 121 or page 571. And let's read this together. Follow along uh, as I read. Now listen to where this seems to make a promise that it can't keep or hasn't kept. And then let's go look at why I think this is still a text that actually is true and can change your life. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the mountains where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. 
He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going both now and forevermore. And it's especially, can you tell where I'm going to go with this, which verse I'm going to pick on? Which memory verse I'm talking about? It's verse 7. The Lord will keep you from all harm, and he will watch over your life. He will watch over your coming and your going, both now and forevermore. And it's especially the first portion of that text that seems to me as though it's a promise that God cannot keep, hasn't kept. The Bible, is it telling us a lie or is that a text properly understood that could actually, it has the potential to change the way we live? Because here's my question to you. Do you know any followers of Christ who have not experienced at some level, and by some definition, harm? That's one question. And the next question is, maybe what does it mean then when God promises, or the text seems to promise, that for those who follow Christ, that those who are loving God, living for him, that he will keep us from Harm, doesn't even say harm, it says all harm. Now remember, this was probably spoken initially in uh, some form of Hebrew. Hebrew, yeah, Hebrew, Aramaic, whatever, and then translated into Greek. But very early on, this stuff was translated into Greek. And so we can even take, Hebrew's tough to translate to get the real meaning. You can take the Greek, it's a little more precise. And you still have this idea, though, that we are kept from harm. And some people read that and they say that my life as a Christian, there's a guarantee in the Bible that I will be cocooned, I will be insulated. Some people even form theologies that say, since the Bible promises that I will not experience harm if I follow Christ, I can then logically conclude that if I do experience harm or anybody else that experiences negative things in their life and they claim to be following Jesus, there must be something wrong with the way they're following Christ because the scripture promises and the scripture is reliable. It doesn't lie to us. It doesn't trick us. It promises that we will be kept from harm if we're following God. End of story, right? You see my point? What do we do when God seems to be lying to us? When the very scriptures in which we're spending our summer are at least appear or feel as though they're deceptive. Or when well-intentioned and not so well-intentioned preachers actually listlessly uh, promote that idea. Is the Bible telling the truth or not? Is this a summer in the scriptures worth spending in the scriptures? Or is it a summer in the sham? And I hope you know, I don't mean to imply that the latter is true. I'm actually convinced that properly understood this text is a fantastic life changer. And let's look at why. How much time do I have left? Uh, nine minutes. 
We can do this. So let's look at this. How do I come to that conclusion? Because the thing says what it says, but how do we understand it then? Are we being fair to it? Sometimes the reason we're disappointed with what we read or disappointed in God is because we project things upon him or it, the text, that it never really promised and never intended in the first place. And so we set our theological presuppositions, and then from then on, they are the filters through which we interpret everything, including every experience. And uh, as we interpret all those things through that experience, we judge God based by the presuppositions that we had. And if the presuppositions are wrong, he, he gets misrepresented and misunderstood. Let's look at how we, how we can understand Psalms. It's sort of the hermeneutics of Psalms, the hermeneutics of poetry, because Psalms are poetry. And we, none of us interprets standard poetry the same way we interpret math problems or math equations or scientific reports. If I'm handed a scientific report, I have a certain set, there's an understanding. I'm reading this and it's meant to be precise. It's meant to measure everything. It cannot afford even to get something wrong. It wants to record it exactly as it saw it. It's not trying to be artistic. It's trying to be scientific and accurate. If I read a poem or look at a beautiful piece of artwork, it's not trying to be scientific and accurate. It's trying to express accurate truth through an emotive form. And it holds itself not to a lesser standard, but to a different standard. Everybody understands that, right? We don't interpret poetry the same way we interpret a different kind of literature. And the Psalms are poetry. That doesn't mean they're less true. It simply means they're trying to express truth in a different form. It's a different genre. So one of the things we've got to do when we read the Psalms, and certainly when we read this Psalm that was assigned to us to read this week, is we recognize genre is critical to understanding. Listen, you get two notes. One note is meant to be directions to dinner. Here's how you get to the restaurant. And the note says, when you come to a fork in the road, turn right. You have another note with the exact same words on it, except it's a note from one of your parents about how to make life decisions. And it says, when you get to a fork in the road, turn right. Nobody has any problem with the idea that we would interpret those two identical statements very differently, right? And why is that? Because of the genre. The directions are meant to be precise. The statement about life is meant to be artistic and poetic, but it's trying to communicate something true and important, at least from the perspective of your parents. We would never read this line in a poem and then accuse it of being untrue because it gave us wrong directions. Genre is everything. And in all literature, understanding the genre is critical to understanding the meaning. And when we come to the Psalms, we come to poetry. We come to an art gallery. We come to music. And we don't hold it to the same literary standard We don't interpret it through the same lenses that we do something that's in a different genre. So that affects the way we understand the statement, the Lord will keep you from all harm 
He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going, both now and forevermore. That's meant to be artistically understood to communicate precise truth. But it's not communicating with precise language any more than a poem is. You get, you get that point? A genre is everything when we interpret Scripture. Second point, context is king. My homiletics my uh, hermeneutics professor in seminary, hermeneutics, the art and science of interpretation. We took lots of those questions. Every, he, I had him for several classes. He was one of my favorites. He was a fantastic professor. Every time he mentioned the word context as he was teaching us young potential pastors how to interpret scripture, he would stomp his foot. Just to drive home, context is everything. Your little Greek word that you translate into all that, that's important, but it's not important as... Context, 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 he would argue and, uh, and almost scream at us. And what's the context of Psalm 121, a psalm that you hopefully were reading this week? This is recognized as a song of ascent. So this was a song that was sung by people as they were ascending the hill to get to the temple, to go up for worship. And they would just sing this song as they were climbing. And trust me, here's something I learned in Israel. Here's something I learned in Jerusalem. No matter where you go in Jerusalem, in the walled cities, the walled city, it's uphill. It's uphill both ways. <laughs> You're always climbing. Stair after stair after stair. Jeff Mazzarello and Ben, they're running up the stairs, running down the stairs. Come on, Greg, come on, I'm dancing on the stairs, and I'm just, <clears throat> is there ever a downhill in this stinking town? No, there's not. Even when we found a downhill, you know what my mind was thinking? If I'm going down, I'm going to have to go back up at some point, you know. It's a, and the, the temple is elevated, and so as people were singing, it would be like you as you were climbing up this hill and climbing the stairs if you were singing some of the songs that we sang in worship to prepare your heart for the experience. And that's the context, most likely, of Psalm 121. Kind of like the confident chants of a football team as they're coming through the tunnel. We're going to win today. We're going to play our best game ever. We're gonna, we're, they're going to be sorry they ever showed up on the field. They may prove out uh, differently on the football field, but those are the preparatory statements for the game that's about to be played. And that's the context of Psalm 121. It was sung. I lift my eyes to the mountains. And, and, and actually, we can find um, uh, Hasidic Jews who would sing this psalm. Could have shown you that from YouTube. Go check it out. It's kind of cool. So the point of this, in its context, is to remind that God is there for us, that God cares for us. Remember, it's artistic, not necessarily meant to be precise theology. It's meant to communicate something that's true and create an emotion. It reminds us that God protects our souls, regardless of the form of evil that assaults them. And so while they prepare for worship at the temple, they sing this song that calls them to worship by rehearsing the nature of God through artistic form. 
It's poetry, not science. It's not intending, nor is it attempting to be theologically precise. Its purpose is to be beautiful and inspiring in its context. So genre is critical to understanding the Bible we're studying and reading this this summer. Any verses that have the potential for changing your life need to be understood in terms of genre and context is king as a servant to that understanding. And then ah, I want to finish with this one real fast. Third point is this. The didactic clarifies the poetic. It doesn't trump the poetic, but by didactic, I mean, I mean, our artistic presentations are always understood best through the lenses of clear teachings. When you have an artistic expression of the protective nature and protective heart of God, but it's offered in the form of poetry, the clear, one-dimensional, I mean to be precise, sort of teachings that we also have in Scripture that, re, that deal with the same uh, uh, um, 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 idea, they give us instruction as to what the artistic means. For instance, I was going to have us go to each of these texts. I'm just going to race through them now. <clears throat> there are some didactic... Well, let's show the picture of the, uh, the, the next slide there. One of the things we did was visit, one of my bucket lists, visit the Chagall. Uh, this is in a hospital, in a, uh, a chapel in a hospital there in Jerusalem, in a, um, uh, what's a uh, Jewish worship, synagogue. So you walk in, and these Chagall, there's a, there's a window that Mark Chagall did for this hospital, and each window represents one of the 12 tribes. And then there are 12 panes in each window. And here's what you can do. You can go look at the artistic form and really enjoy it on its own. But they have this deal where you can push a button and you sit down and you face three of them at a time. And while you're looking at the artistic form, you have somebody explaining to you what was behind each thing that Chagall was trying to represent and how, should say, for instance, in the lower left a corner of the first window on your left-hand side, and you'd be looking at you know, this one right here. You see a fish or something, and this is representing X, Y, and Z. And they would work you through sort of a little mini lecture on each window. And then it would say, okay, now move one section to your left. So you go and you sit, and now you're facing three more. And you have the clear and didactic giving us a lens for understanding the artistic. And that's what I'm trying to illustrate here. When we have Scripture teaching specific things about an issue that we read, for instance, in poetic literature, the didactic helps us to experience properly the artistic. What kinds of things are taught about God protecting us in Scripture where there's no need to wonder what in the world it means? It's very, very clear. Well, in Matthew 10, Jesus, as he sends out his followers to do ministry, says, be careful out there. It's crazy out there. We live as sheep among wolves. And if you read Matthew 10 in that whole section, it's a little bit scary about what kinds of things he guarantees we're going to experience. Hardship. Of course, John 16, 33, Jesus says, in the world, you're going to have 
trouble, tribulation. He doesn't say, but Garrett, take heart because I will insulate you from every experience of hardship. I will keep you from evil. What he says is, I've overcome the world. We have moved the decimal point on the ultimate effects of evil upon your life. I'm protecting you, I'm caring for you, but you're going to be experiencing evil. There will be hardship. You have Romans 8.37. Listen to this. I want to, I want to actually um, uh, read these texts. Romans 8.37 and John 10.27. Uh, let, me, let me just go to those. Um, read those for you. Where are you? Uh, well, here's the John 10. I'll just read that one. John 10, 27 and following says this. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And Jesus goes on and gives this teaching that clarifies what's going on in Psalm 121. So that in Psalm 121, you can say, that is a text that can change my life. Why? Because the clear and didactic has helped me understand the less clear, but certainly truthful, artistic. And here's what's being said. God will protect our souls from evil, the ultimate power and voice of evil is limited because no one's ever going to snatch us or the ones we love from the hand of God. No matter what evil has stolen from us that it should never have stolen, no matter what we're being asked to live with because we sh that we should not have ever been uh, asked to live with, no matter who's been taken from us in our lives, no matter how many children we've buried, no matter how tragic our marriage was, no matter how deep the sickness was, and we say, Lord, what's going on? I'm on your side. Doesn't the Bible promise me that you will protect me and keep me from all evil? I feel as though you've asked me to marry evil. I feel as though you've given it a room in my home sometimes. Is the scripture true? The answer is this. He will protect you from evil. And there will be one day when you will look in retrospect and say, he has kept me from evil. Because evil has some limited power, and it's a temporary power, but one day it will yield, and that is faith that holds on to that promise. That one day things will make sense. One day the pain will be made irrelevant. One day I'll be unified and, and, and reconnected with every good thing that I've lost. One day I will say, you've kept your promise but oh man, was it hard to hold on to that promise. Do you hear me? That's 121 saying the Lord will keep us. The Lord will care for us. And the Lord will sustain us while we're wondering whether or not he forgot us in the first place. Let me tell you something, man. You hold on to that text. And you understand that psalm the way it should be understood as poetic literature and that conviction will change your stinking life forever, will it not? You go ahead and scar me, evil. You go ahead and rip me off. But I cling to Jesus. I hide in the cross 
of Christ who promises me that one day there will be no more tears. One day the lion will lie down with the lamb. They won't want to eat each other or run from each other again. One day I'll have supper again with the children I buried. And as we climb the hill, it's a call to worship, to remember that God cares for us.